0: Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. I'm your host, Phil, and I'm joined today by John Doyle, as always. And it's alumni day here on the Shop Notes podcast. We have special guest, Randy Maxey. Uh, today's episode, we'll talk about what Randy's been up to and a couple of books that he's been working on and written. I want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by Shaper Tools, makers of the Shaper origin, the handheld CNC router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. You can tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with both speed and precision. Try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Visit shapertools.com to learn more. All right. It's my pleasure to welcome sort of back, to the podcast here, Randy Maxey, who was a longtime editor for both Woodsmith and Shop Notes magazine. Um, uh, Randy has published several woodworking books since his time here and also worked with a tool manufacturer, and he's just got a fun story to tell, so we thought we'd catch up with him and see what he's been up to so that's my introduction for you randy how what else would you want to say
1: well i mean it's like a reunion for woodsmith here <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see all you guys yeah yeah randy Thanks.
2: and i worked on um readers tips for together um in shop notes magazine is probably 10 15 years ago and i'm still doing reader tips for woodsmith magazine and i'm sorry yeah
0: and randy was able to graduate
2: yep he's moved on and living a good life so
1: (laughs) yeah i've been probably as busy as you guys are with everything you've got going on there finally uh got some shop space after going for about five years um just kind of hobbling along and uh So my new shop area is right behind the Tampa airport, which makes for some interesting uh, noises when we're trying to record video. So (laughs) yeah, the the planes like to take off and land directly across our top of our building. So it's challenging at times, but I'm sure anyway, it's good to be back in my my own space and uh, been doing a lot of writing and kind of anxious to get back to, building some projects
0: yeah anything you have on your list
1: oh nothing specific at this point i know we we talked about uh, my publisher and i have talked about doing a uh, book on joinery and i'm trying to figure out if i want to incorporate a project or two or three in that you know show practical uses for it but we're still in the idea stages for that. So we haven't gotten too far with it yet.
0: So speaking of your books, uh, I know that you've been involved with two of them. You want to describe them a little bit?
1: Well, the first one that I was actually involved with was uh, Outdoor Games. Uh, it was kind of an interesting project that uh, we had all these ideas to come up with these easy to build games for outdoors that a, a DIYer or a beginning woodworker could put together and and have some fun in their backyard and for me it was kind of a a change because I'm used to the woodsmith shop notes style of woodworking where we're you know you're building fine furniture or shop jigs or whatever and now I'm working with plywood and two by fours and just screwing stuff together and making it you know (laughs) making it functional which is Mm -hmm. you know what's what our target audience wants and uh the book has been been doing very well uh the second book uh was called woodworking basics uh was kind of a fun one to work on uh And it was, it was a a challenge too, because we decided at the outset that we weren't going to use any power tools on the projects in that book. And, uh, we, so when I went into the shop, I, it was like, um, okay, how am I going to do this operation without a table saw, uh, without a bandsaw, without a router, uh, so I would literally stand there and look at what I have to do and try to figure out a way that the average beginning woodworker or a homeowner or a DIYer would go about accomplishing that joinery and building that project. And it was, it was quite the challenge, but I think, I think we hit all the the good points and, um, that book seems to be doing fairly well as well. And then the latest one I've worked on is it's called sharpening a woodworker's guide. Uh, you know, sometimes when you write a book, your idea of what the book should be and what the publisher's idea of what the book should be are two different things. <laughs> so uh, they wanted me to cover a broad spectrum of sharpening, including garden tools and kitchen tools and mm. all this stuff. And, you know, it's it was a challenge to to put all that together and try to present it in a way that, again the beginner or you know the DIYer could pick up a tool and you know purchase the appropriate equipment to sharpen that tool and show them the proper techniques and um in in some areas we kind of uh i think we did very well in other areas you know you you look back on the printed book after it's all done and you go man i could have done that a little better you know (laughs) or a little different so Mm -hmm. uh But it's, it's, it's a good overall general purpose book on uh, sharpening and covers techniques and the different supplies you would need and can use for sharpening your tools.
0: Yeah. So did you learn anything about sharpening in the process of writing the book or learn anything about teaching sharpening?
1: Well, I've always suspected, and it was proven through the book that, uh, you ask a hundred woodworkers how to sharpen a chisel you'll get a hundred different answers (laughs) because the the materials and the techniques all vary you know some like myself i prefer to sharpen freehand and you know i show that technique in the book but i also show using a honing guide you know and, and setting the proper angles and we talk about cutting angles and bevel angles and all that so um you know, I, it's, it was just kind of amazing to me that the broad selection of materials that you can purchase to get a sharp edge on a tool from sharp, uh, you know, water stones, the diamond stones, oil stones, sandpaper, uh, you name it, uh, it's out there. And I, you know, I tried to touch on a lot of those. And then there are the variety of tools that the tool manufacturers want you to feature you know, oh, Hey, sure. our gizmo and our guide are, are, the, you know, be all end all for sharpening. And, you know, you, you, take a look at them and you try to, you try to see where they fit and are they appropriate for somebody that's just starting out and, and wanting to learn sharpening. So, you know, it, it was, it was quite the task to try to boil everything down. It's not an exhaustive thesis on, you know, like uh, Mr. Lee's book on sharpening. Um, or yeah. Mr. Hawk's book on sharpening. It's just a basic, here are some things you can buy. Here are some techniques you can use uh, to get a sharp edge on whatever it is you're sharpening. This mm-hmm. pair of scissors or a kitchen knife or pocket knife or a chisel or a hand plane, any of that. So yeah. it, it was, it was uh, quite the challenge to get that all done. And, you know, I shoot my own photography I do my own illustrations, plus do the writing. So, wow. you know, add that on top of, you know, just doing the writing and it, uh, it was, sure. it was quite the process.
0: How long did it take to put that together all?
1: Uh, I'm going to say probably a good five to six months oh, yeah, to get it, get it all
0: together. I would imagine, you know, one of the things that, you know, we, struggle with as magazine writers that I'm sure you deal with in a book is the fine line between being descriptive and instructional. And yet knowing that sharpening along with a lot of woodworking skills is kind of a journey, you know, because I'm sure that your sharpening approach now is different than it was Ten years ago, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. When I when I first started out, it, really the only sharpening medium I could afford was wet dry sandpaper. You know, and and mm-hmm. I I had a piece of glass, and I you know put my sandpaper down, and I went through the grits, and and uh, and I didn't even have a honing guide. I was trying to do it freehand, and I had a lot of failures uh, before I finally figured out what I was doing wrong, and. I used wet dry sandpaper for a lot of years. Then I graduated to uh, diamond stones. Sure. Um, and, and now I've got, uh, you know, a broad selection of, uh, ceramic waterstones and waterstones, and they all have their advantages and disadvantages. So, you know, it's just, it depends on what your needs are and what your budget is really. Yeah. And, and the one thing is, you know, no matter what technique you show or what equipment you show, Somebody's always going to claim they have a better way, you know, and you just <laughs> as a writer and an author, I have to, you know, look beyond that and and, and just do what I know how to do. And, and that was the re- agreement I had with the publisher. You know, I could show, you know, the techniques I use um, and, uh, you know, if somebody disagrees with that, but their technique works for them, that's great. Mm-hmm. But here's how I do it. And and that's kind of the process and the the thought process I went through with the book.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I think sharpening is definitely one of those things that you kind of have to find out the, the technique that works for you and that you're going to do consistently and, uh, go with that, even though there's lots of different ways. So
1: I, uh, did a presentation in front of one of woodworking clubs here in uh, Florida and brought up the subject of sharpening and, and, uh, You know, I asked for a show of hands, how many feel comfortable sharpening and, and not many hands went up. And and so I asked, you know, what's, what's the issue that prevents you from, you know, getting comfortable with the aspect of sharpening a chisel or a plane iron. And, you know, the one guy brought up, he says, I'm afraid we're going to screw up a tool. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him, I said, you know what? You probably will, yeah. <laughs> but you're going to learn from that experience and you'll learn how to recover the edge, you know, and that's all part of the learning process. You can't, yeah. you can't be afraid of, you know, screwing it up because, you know, chances are if, if, if you're beginning, you may, and, and you know, you may get an edge that doesn't cut well, or, is, you know, just ugly to look at, but you've got some experience under your belt now that you can go back, and try it again
0: right and like oh. the next time is always better it right. seems like yep
1: i remember the first time i tried to put a camber on uh, the uh smoothing plane and uh, i put so much of a camber on it i was maybe getting a strip of wood about a half inch wide <laughs> um, when i adjusted the the blade out so it uh i learned from that one that it doesn't sure. take much camber to 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 do the job. So Mm -hmm. it's all a learning process. And if you, and if you don't do it, you're not going to learn. Right. Yeah. And even if you pick up a book on sharpening still, if you don't actually do it, you're not going to learn.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes even some of the, not necessarily the books that you mentioned, but there are sharpening books out there that try and take an encyclopedic approach. And I wonder and question just how helpful that is, because if you present 9,000 options for how to sharpen something, have you really helped anybody other than possibly just confused the whole issue?
1: Yeah, there, you know, a lot of books go into the uh, discussion of tool steels and the different types of steel. And I just basically touched on it because I figured, you know, the reader that we're targeting is a beginner Uh, is a do-it-yourselfer, they really aren't going to care what kind of steel their tool is made of. They just want to know if they can get it sharp. Right. And I I briefly touch on the different types and, you know, the types of steel they could look for, but I don't go into the metallurgy and and all that stuff, you know, it's just the, the process of sharpening.
0: Yeah. And I think there's also a sense of... I don't know, kind of a false objectivity that X steel is better than Y steel, or this sharpening medium is better than that sharpening medium. You know, it's just more of like, what are you looking for in a particular tool or in a sharpening process or whatever? Like you said, there's four, you know, before that there's advantages and disadvantages to each one of those.
1: And that, that is one thing I have learned over the years is that, you know, whether you, it's Japanese blue steel, uh, or, you know, a Veritas PMV 11, or just a plain carbon steel blade. I've noticed in my experience, there are distinct differences between those, those materials. You know, the, high, the carbon steel blade is very easy to sharpen, but it doesn't hold the edge as long as maybe a PMV 11 powdered metal blade or a a Japanese steel blade, which, you know, the the better ones are hand forged. Um, You know, so, yes, they do make a difference. But for somebody just starting out, you know, a high car, learning how to sharpen a a tool with a high carbon steel blade is, you know, will get you way ahead. And, And then from there, you can, you know, broaden your experience with some of the other tool steels.
0: So how about your other book, the, um, the woodworking basics, what led to the decision of not including power tools?
1: Well, again, uh, this publisher, uh, targets, um, home crafters and do it yourselfers. And so we, we thought, okay, if with just some basic tools, like a handsaw, a hammer, some basic chisels, and maybe a portable hand drill, sure. uh, can we build some projects using just those tools? And um, I, I think we succeeded. I mean, the book seems to be selling well. Uh, but, nice. You know, it it, it uh, we're, we're targeting that audience that's looking at woodworking and going, man, I can't afford. And, that, you know, that's been one of my pet peeves with some of the magazines is, you know, we always assume as writers and editors that, our target audience has thousands and thousands of dollars worth of power tools in their shop. Well, that's not the case with everybody, especially somebody that's looking at the hobby going, I would like to try that, but I don't have that kind of money, nor do I have the space. Mm -hmm. And so with just a few basic tools, you know, you can, you can do some decent work and build some good looking projects. And that was, that was our aim for that
0: book. Yeah, because it is kind of interesting. You can't start from nowhere. You have to make some assumptions on having a starting point for tools. And then, again, it gets into that thing where it's like, are you being prescriptive on what you're trying to get across or descriptive on what's going on with the process? So I think, John, we were just talking about that in relationship to projects last week with Mm -hmm. Dylan.
2: Yeah, just of... uh... Like, where do you start? Do you, like, you know, show people how to make these big heirloom projects or, you know, something that's more easily attainable to to get those early successes that, you know, keeps them going and keeps them in the hobby and, you know, can work your way up to those dream projects.
1: Prior to the uh, pandemic, I was teaching some basic hand tool joinery classes at the Florida School of Woodwork. And my students there, the aha moments when they first realize how to properly use a handsaw and how to properly sharpen a plane and adjust it to get that shaving. I mean, one guy yelled across the room when he took his hand plane to a piece of wood and he got this wispy thin shaving is, oh my God, that's how it's supposed to work. (laughs) You know, and it's just that aha Mm -hmm. moment that these... You know, and it, and my argument has always been if you don't know how to use basic hand tools and master them, mm-hmm. then, you know, the power tools aren't really going to help you that much.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: because you have to learn the fine points of joinery and what a good joint looks like and how it's supposed to fit together. And how do you get from point A to point B and what tools do you use to do that?
2: Right. They kind of just help you get through all that faster or do more of it. Like you said, if you don't know how to do the basics of it, then it doesn't do you much good.
1: And I've always advocated that even if you have a shop full of thousands of dollars of power tools, you still need to learn to master hand tools.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about, you mentioned teaching, talk about the differences between teaching through your writing and then teaching in person and maybe where they go back and forth.
1: Well, teaching in person is always uh, interesting because in most classes, you have a variety of skill levels coming into the class. So you have to adjust your instruction to accommodate everybody. So, you know, those that have, you know, may already have experience using a hand plane, you give them exercises and tacks, you know, that, they can do while we're spending more time with the beginners to get them set up to do the same task. Um, so it's a challenge to try to keep up, you know, try to keep everybody on the same page. Sure. Uh, and then with writing, you know, I, I always have to force myself, you know, I know how to do what I'm writing about. But I have to step back and look at, okay, the, the reader may not have a clue what I'm talking about. So how do I describe what I'm doing, and show what I'm doing in steps that make sense, you know, to somebody that's never done that before? Sure. Uh, you know, in a classroom environment, you can demo, you know, the procedure, you can demo how to use a handsaw. you can demo how to properly set up a hand plane, and then ask the students to go back to their benches and, and do some exercises to, to put those into practice. But with with writing, you have to rely on photos and illustrations. And, and that's where I always thought, you know, woodsmith, uh, did an excellent job. Um, you know, I, my dad subscribed to woodsmith since day one, and that's where I learned, uh, a lot of my woodworking is looking at his copies of of the magazine. And I was always impressed with the, uh, the photos and the illustrations that broke down the processes to, to be able to accomplish those projects. And it it was, it was a big help.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a class, too, you can see it when somebody gets it or on their face when they're not really getting it.
1: And even in the classroom, I have to force myself to step back and say, "Okay, they don't know how to properly hold a handsaw. They don't know how to start the cut. Yeah. You know, I do that just automatically, but I have to step back and, and realize that they don't know how to do that. So I have to show them. You know, so as an instructor, you have to assume that what you're trying to illustrate, they have no experience with whatsoever. So what are the steps to get, you know, get them going with with the tool and proper technique?
0: Right. So now, before you came to Woodsmith, you had a certain amount of woodworking and home improvement background. Because I remember hearing several stories of a, an addition you built on the back of your house.
1: Right. My dad was a handyman, uh, so I, you know, would would help him with projects while I was growing up, and I took uh, woodworking projects in 4-H. If anybody knows what that is anymore, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, he would help me with some of those projects, and then. As I got older, I'd start building things on my own. And then when I got married, you know, I started to put together my own shop. My first workshop was in a basement and I built a workbench out of two by fours and a sheet of plywood, and I put a piece of masonite or hardboard on top of that so that I could replace it if I needed to. And then I had a woodsmith built uh, router table. Okay, uh, and a circular saw, and uh, a handheld router, and a portable drill, and that was it. I had no drill press, no bandsaw, no joiner no planer. But I would go to the lumberyard and and uh, you know say I'm I, I want these boards, but can you plane them down for me? That was back in the day when the lumberyard would be happy to accommodate you and they'd run them through the planer or to whatever thickness you needed and that sure. that was a big help but i built a lot of projects in that first shop and as a matter of fact i ended up remodeling our entire kitchen in our first house with just those basic tools but then uh, we moved from there into a, a rural area in a story and a half house that some of my friends said should have been torn down um, <laughs> but we, we went in and gutted it and put in all new mechanicals and everything. And, uh, I have seven boys. So a story and a half house with two bedrooms, wasn't going to cut it. So we eventually designed our own, um, uh, addition and we essentially tripled the square footage of the existing house by wow. putting this addition on and you know, I did, I did a lot of the framing and I did all the electrical myself, all the plumbing myself, and I have tons of stories I could tell about that, but, um, <laughs> I learned a lot and surprisingly I did pass the plumbing inspection and the electrical inspection first time out. So
0: wow.
1: I was pretty proud of that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like anytime I've ever done plumbing and it might be the simplest thing, it's like 10 trips to the store of like getting the parts that finally fit and don't leak. And so it's always a journey. And
1: you're afraid to take back what you've already bought because you may need it later. Right, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: I've purchased a variety of these things over the last year and a half, and now that the house is done, I don't think I need them. Can I bring them back still? Yeah. I remember one of the stories that you told was, uh, I don't remember if it was the kitchen remodel or as part of the addition where, uh, you had done the cabinets using a molding head cutter on the table. saw. that
1: was in my first house. Okay. Yep. I had a Sears craftsman, uh, table saw. I forgot to mention that I did have a Sears craftsman table saw and the molding head for that, where you could have three replaceable cutters. And, uh, I made all the rails and styles for the cabinet doors using that. And I don't know why they're not more prevalent because it did a great job and it was, you know, relatively inexpensive. Right. Um, but it worked great for me, I mean, it's you know you had the cope and stick profiles and glue them together and put a panel in them and it's you know you're done. it was great,
0: yeah, yeah, for people who are not aware of it, it's an interesting tool because it's kind of like the unholy offspring of a dado blade and router bits,
1: and it scares the crap out of you when you first turn it up to saw on <laughs> <laughs> a- zzzz.
0: Yeah, there's a unique hum to it that, so it's basically a large steel disc that attaches to your saw, just like a table saw blade, but you have three interchangeable cutters that you can use and you can get in a variety of profiles. So it's not just joinery, like you can do, I mean, I think there's a rabbiting one and a variety of, you know, basically like router profiles, OGs and Uh, roundovers and coves. I don't know if anybody's still
1: making those or not. I thought there was one manufacturer left, but I'm not sure they're around. I believe they still
0: are. The Korob Cutter, I think, is the company. If they are, I'll put a link to it on the show notes page for the website. I'll also have links for Randy's books if you're interested in checking those out as well. So, yeah, so it was... For me, when you came in as an editor, it was kind of fun to have your perspective on, uh, cause it seemed like a lot of the people that I, that we worked with, they were either professional woodworkers or, uh, yeah, I guess more like professional woodworkers or designers. And then you and I were kind of the hobbyist slum dogs that. We're just doing it because we loved it.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's always been an enjoyable hobby for me. And, and, you know, yeah, you make mistakes. And sometimes when you make a mistake, you just have to put your tools down and go inside and turn the TV on. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> overall, it's it's an enjoyable hobby if you're able to, you know, step back and take your time and, and do a good job and and not feel rushed. Um, you know, I've, I've taken on some paid projects where you get three quarters of the way through it and you're just like, I'm ready for this to be done, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, then you 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 kind of sort of rush through things and then you make mistakes and joints don't fit right. And, you know, I'm always having to force myself to take a deep breath, step back, force myself to slow down and You know, just take my time because that's that's the only way you're going to get good results.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm more of a power tool guy, so it's when I make mistakes, I have to go in and change my pants and go take a break (laughs) and get away from the tools for a little bit. Yeah, when I'm rushing through and things get might get a little hairy. So,
0: so what would you what do you remember about your time at Woodsmith and Shop Notes now that you've had? Uh, a good long interval to decompress
1: oh it was it was a great experience i mean i um actually you know in a lot of ways hated leaving there because you know i got to get up every morning and go to work and talk about woodworking and write about woodworking and you know all everybody there was a woodworker and it was just great you know, camaraderie, uh, you know, in the shop to, to be able to watch a project being built and to discuss with the designers, different options for joinery and, you know, w- you know, bug the designers, John, mm-hmm. you know, why did you design it that way? You know, and, uh, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I learned a lot from the other woodworkers, uh, you know, because, we sometimes have blinders on about the way we like to do things and to be able to see a variety of techniques from different people, um, was, was a a good education for me. Mm
0: -hmm. Any particular events or stories that stand out to you?
1: I remember one time, um, I had just started there and Steve Johnson was one of the craftsmen in the shop. And at that time, he was big into Japanese hand planes and had a, a broad selection of them. And so he and I would talk hand planes a lot and uh, just kind of banter back and forth. But one day I walked into the shop and I tried to strike up a conversation with him and he didn't respond. And, and then after a few seconds, he looked at me and he says, I am in the middle of a glue up. I'll talk to you later.
2: <laughs> so,
1: so I learned that... Uh, anytime somebody's gluing up a project you just back away and let them be until it's clamped and stressful
0: situation yes (laughs) no i do know that the mark and steve now like that's woodworking in a fishbowl in the sense that you know there's constantly people around and you're trying to do top-notch work and
1: and for me that would bug me you know I, i i would be self-conscious you know if people were always walking by and looking at what i'm doing right um, that's just the way i am but um by the same token it's an opportunity to, to to open up conversation about what why you're doing it that way and sure you know uh and the other thing i learned too was was how to apply uh, spray apply lacquer you know that that mm-hmm. was that was a that was a good experience. I had some experience with that at a prior job, it was spraying on finishes, but yeah. uh, it's a little bit different when you're talking a piece of furniture. Sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. Definitely, getting to the finish is definitely the the stressful part because you've gotten that far and you don't want to screw it up at that point. So.
1: And can I just say here publicly in front of the world, I hate finishing. <laughs> 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 That's fair. That's fair. <laughs>
0: It's a safe place. Yeah.
1: If it's not, if it's not an oil and wax finish. Yeah. Count me
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, cause I think there's a element of it that you don't want to screw up the project by misapplication, but I think there's also one of the jobs of finish is to highlight everything you've screwed up up until this point as well. Right. Right. You know, whether it's like, oh, crap, I didn't get the glue out of that little seam there, didn't I? I must have had
2: glue on my thumb when I put those pieces together. <laughs> yep, fingerprints. Yeah. But yeah, It's once you get finished on, it's definitely hard to go back. It's hard to remove that or fix the mistakes after the finish has gone on and just kind of live with it.
1: The last project I did that was a paying project before I left Iowa was... Uh, to build some cabinets above a, uh, oh, this this townhome had some recessed areas and they wanted some cabinets to go in these little nooks. So I, and they wanted them to match the existing cabinetry. Sure. So I built the cabinets and I probably spent a week trying to track down finishes that would match the existing finish and, you know, I'd actually taken a drawer front off and taken it to the stores and said, here's what I'm trying to match. So I, I go and I apply all the stain and get everything done, I deliver the cabinets and there is no way in the world they're going to (laughs) match and the customer was not happy and I had to rebuild the cabinets Mm. and that was the last time I put a finish on, on a paying job and I will never do it again mm-hmm. for, not for a paying client. Yeah.
0: If right. they want to
1: finish it, I will build the project. Yeah. But if the, the finish is one of the things where they, they have this idea in their mind. Right. And you can never attain that because you can't see it. Right. And so yeah. no matter what you bring them,
2: it's, it's not right. going to be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, even if you have the exact finish, uh, you, the wood might be a little different or the other exactly. thing has aged a little bit and changed the color slightly. And it's just, it's almost
0: impossible to match. So, so considering where you are now and the fact that you've uh, started setting up another workshop space, what are some of the things that you would advise somebody who's starting out in terms of setting up a shop space. Is there something that you wish you could go back in time to early woodworking Randy and advised him to have started a little bit differently or maybe.
1: I think I would have bought a bandsaw sooner. Yeah, because it's a pretty versatile tool. Um, The other thing I would say is learn to use and master the tools that you have, you know, because you can do a lot with just basic tools. Uh, You know, if all you have is a contractor's table saw, you know, learn how to use it and get the accuracy out of it by building a a sled for it or, you know, purchasing an aftermarket miter gauge, you know, maximize the use of, of the tools that you already have. And then, you know, as you build projects, you can, kind of determine what your next tool purchase would be. Now, you know, like for me, I have never owned a joiner, right? Uh, because number one, I didn't have room for it. And number two, uh, most of my cuts off the table saw are pretty straight. So I would just use a hand plane or a joiner plane, you know, and number six or seven and you know two swipes i've got the saw marks removed and i'm ready for a glue up so yeah uh, I, i've never found a jointer to be that necessary for the type of projects i build yeah uh, you know when i moved i had to sell my planer so i think for my shop right now my next purchase is going to be probably a benchtop planer um But, you know, one thing I learned in writing my books, and especially targeting the DIY market is, you know, the the goal has been, what can you go to your local home center and purchase as far as lumber and build from that? So quite frankly, uh, the last few years, I've been purchasing, you know, surface four side lumber from the home center and building projects with that. Yeah. It's a little pricey uh, compared to what you could get from a lumber yard, but, um, you know, don't discount that as an option. You know, I think Phil, you understand my, uh, love for poplar because it's easy to machine and it's easy to use hand tools on, but I like the looks of it. You know, you get some of that green in there and you leave it sit out in the sun for a day or two and it gets that nice golden brown color you know i I've, I've just fallen in love with poplar and it's it's one of the least inexpensive woods there is yeah and and if you want to build a project build it with poplar first to see how you know to master the joinery and, and get it done and you may end up just liking it the way it is you know instead of using you know a fancier hardwood like walnut cherry oak or you know whatever right uh, but yeah, I you know, and, and in my classes I taught you know we used poplar because it was easy to to work with, sure. And, and it's inexpensive, so, um, yeah, I would I would say. You know, get the basic tools, but learn how to master those and figure out what it is you need to to purchase next. And what you know, what's your budget? What kind of space do you have? You know, I, in some ways, I envy these guys that have you know, 2,000 square foot shops and, you know, all kinds of storage space and, and every tool known to man. But, you know, the reality is I don't think that's very, um, representative of a lot of woodworkers. I mean, a lot of woodworkers are working out of a spare room in their apartment or a half a garage, you know? So how do you accomplish, uh, these great looking projects in a limited amount of space with a limited budget and with a limited tool set it is possible but you know you have to think outside the box and learn how to master the tools that you have
0: mm-hmm. right and also kind of realize that you know i think there's a cuz there's sort of popular fun articles to write of x tools that you need to start woodworking and i think you know, we've both discovered, or all of us have discovered that you can probably get started building stuff with a lot fewer tools than you think. Right. You know, and that there's always going to be a journey, you know, not trying to think that there's a a perfect starting line to start from, or that you've arrived necessarily at a shop. You know, you're, you know, over the course of your time as a woodworker, you've acquired and discarded probably an equal, a number of tools that you either, you know, found that you really wanted or realized you didn't need.
1: Well, that's the other piece of advice I guess I'd give too, is if if you're starting out and you're looking to purchase tools, purchase the best that you can afford because buying something inexpensive is going to lead to frustration and trying to get to work the way it's supposed to. Just take a hand plane, for example. You know, you can go to the home center and buy buy a hand plane, but how much time are you going to spend tuning it up and trying to get it to work when you can go and purchase a better quality plane for you know a little more money? But then now you've got a tool that's a lifetime investment. You don't have to buy that tool again ever. Right. And once you learn to set it up and use it, you'll appreciate you know the quality. So that's. You know, that's one thing, too, is don't don't cheap out on tools.
2: So you said you've been getting a lot of wood from home centers. To, um, in Central Florida, they have, like, woodworking stores, like the woodsmith store here in Des Moines, or places to to buy other kinds of wood or specialty There are tools a or... few
1: woodcraft stores scattered about, and um, in other parts of the state, there are some Rockler stores. Uh, but we have quite a selection of lumber yards here that it Mm -hmm. you know get get any but anything you want really sure and are are happy to mill it for you and and do all that so you know we're not at a lack for for good quality
2: hardwoods sure is there something or is there materials that are more prevalent in florida that we don't find here in iowa or just they have pretty much everything
1: yeah i mean pretty much everything they've got few more exotics, I guess, than you might find up north. But uh, yeah, they can can get just about anything.
0: So is there any branch of woodworking that you could see yourself trying out in the next few years or that you have an interest in?
1: Well, I've always been a, a fan of shaker style furniture, and I would like to build some pieces that you know, I, I don't have to sell or, or use as demos for a class or something that I can actually keep and put in my home. Um, one of the problems with being a woodworker is you're always building stuff for somebody else and <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to keep what you build. So, yeah, uh, uh, I, you know, and I like the shaker style furniture, number one, because it's simplicity and design. And number two, it's you know, the shakers were practical people. They built a piece to be practical and useful. And then, uh, number three, um, shape, most shaker pieces lend themselves well to working with hand
0: tools. Sure.
1: You know, sure. I'll use a bandsaw to cut kind a of taper, but I'm going to use a hand plane to, to smooth it out, you know? So I, you know, I'll use a combination of tools, but, um, I, I enjoy the opportunities I get to use my hand tools. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate the quiet. I appreciate the accuracy they give um, and, the, and the resulting finish. So, um, you know, I, m- my dad, you know, growing up watching him, he, he was a power tool guy sure. because he was paid to get the job done. And, you know, if he needed to take a 30 second off the end of a board to get it to fit somewhere, he would take it back to the table saw and nip it off. You know, he, he had a hand plane. the only, the only time I saw him use a hand plane at all was a little block plane to trim the edge of a door to get it to fit.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, so for him, that was foreign, you know, that you would use a hand plane in carpentry.
0: Where did, so where did the hand tool bug catch you then? Because even when you came to Woodsmith and shop notes, you were kind of the hand tool guy.
1: Well. You know, I've I've always seen these magazine articles, and especially one particular magazine that shall remain nameless, that always featured these guys using these hand planes, and and it was just foreign to me. It's like, why? Why? You know, what's the (laughs) attraction? And then one Christmas, my dad showed up at the house uh, for our family uh, get-together, and he came in carrying this paper bag, and... He said, I found these in the shop. I thought you might get some use out of them. And I opened it up and there was a a number four and a half Stanley smoothing plane. And a number 78 rabbit plane. Oh, wow. I looked at those and I looked at him and I said, what am I supposed to do with these? (laughs) So so I, I just started doing my own research. You know, I got online and then the eBay bug hit mm-hmm. and I started buying all these hand planes off the of e back when the prices were still pretty reasonable. Right. And, uh, so I got a selection of hand planes, but I found myself enjoying the process of restoring a tool almost as enjoyable as building a project. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I figured out how to, I, you know, I took my dad's planes apart, cleaned them, you know, read online how you're supposed to make sure the frog's flat and how you adjust the frog and, you know, flatten the sole and all that stuff. And, you know, I'm brand new at this. so I'm just kind of winging it. Um, and then I finally got the thing sharpened and got it put back together and took my first pass and got this shaving rolling off. And I go, now I get it. Sure and that's what changed my direction of woodworking and the next the next occurrence where that happened was when i purchased a uh shoulder plane Hmm. you know when you're trying to fit joinery together and you need to shave off a few thousandths of an inch to get get that joint to fit just right you know shoulder planes a perfect tool and it's like where have you been all my life you know (laughs) mean it completely changed my woodworking because it made it that much more accurate Mm -hmm. so you know that my my i had no formal instruction in hand plane usage it was all i'm all you know self-taught and everything but the the process of doing that i've learned a lot and now i'm you know teaching people
2: how to do that for themselves and I, i just get a lot of enjoyment out of it yeah, coming from someone like me that uses a lot of power tools, it's definitely hard to, uh, if like you have a joint that's really close but not quite there. If you take it back to a power tool, you could easily take off an eighth of an inch, and it's way too much. And now you have a joint that's too loose. Whereas if you can grab a shoulder plane and, you know, just you know take off a sixty-fourth or whatever and sneak up on that fit, it's it's a lot easier. Two, than, two bench accessories
1: that I have found quite useful are a bench hook mm-hmm. and a shooting board. Yep. Uh for shooting the end grain of a you know, a piece of wood before you cut the joinery and then, you know, fine tuning the the fit. It's just all stuff you learn and appreciate as a as a hand tool user. That's true. Sure. So neither one of you have mentioned, you know, the the fact that I I look like
0: I was just getting to that actually I didn't that you have a you've developed kind of a side hustle these last couple of years.
1: Yeah, a couple of years ago we were at a uh, restaurant around well it was Christmas Eve, and uh, I have a red hat that I wear that's like this that has a little white ball on top and some white fur around the edge and. So I I wear that in public sometimes, and and, uh, we were standing in line waiting to be seated at this restaurant, and this four-year-old girl saw me from about 20 feet away. She comes running over to me, and she's just jumping (laughs) up and down. She goes, you're Santa Claus. I go, yes, I am. (laughs) So I played along, and she goes... I'm going to leave you cookies and milk, and I'm going to write you a note. And I said, oh, I love cookies, you know. <laughs> and, she's, and, th- and then she stopped She got real serious. She looks up at me. She goes, who are you? <laughs> I said, well, who do you think I am? She goes, you're a Santa Claus. And her parents are standing back. They're just enjoying the moment, you know. And Sure. And coincidentally, a cousin of mine, her husband had passed away, and he had played, uh, portrayed Santa Claus, and uh, she sent me his suit. Oh. So last year, I did my first public appearance uh, at a city event here um, where people could come up and get photos taken with Santa and all that. And then. Uh, because of COVID, I decided I wasn't going to do any live events beyond that. And I got hooked up with a company that did virtual visits online. Oh. And so for the months of November and December, I ended up talking to 600 kids around the world and I had a blast. Mm. Cool. It was great. So, and even now, there's a couple neighbor kids that swear i'm santa (laughs) they they just you know every time i go out hi santa and and the one little boy i'll go you're being good aren't you yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i get these random kids coming up to me all the time asking if if i'm santa and of course i am you know to them i am so it's it's a lot of fun it's awesome
0: I think it's kind of funny because I always got the idea that Santa was basically a November and December kind of gig, and uh, there's no off-season for you. Nope. Nope, there isn't. I don't know if you remember this, but years ago, uh, you kind of took offense once to a time you were jogging on a trail not far from your house past an apartment complex and a couple of... uh, Alcohol lubricated young folk had uh, called you Santa from a distance.
1: Yeah, that was back when I had gained uh, quite a bit of weight and I was tired trying to take it off. <laughs> and so I'd taken to jogging. Right. And uh, I took offense at them calling me Santa because I, you know, I inferred from that that they were talking about my weight more so than my uh, beard. Sure. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, since my beard has gotten whiter,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I thought, why not, you know? Right. Got to own it. So I let it go and let it grow and and uh, got the Santa thing going now, and we're getting ramped up for, for this season, and I'm meeting with a fellow Santa tomorrow, actually, to, uh, believe it or not, there are professional associations of Santa portrayers, <laughs> so... I belong to several Facebook groups that, uh, guys that portray Santa and don't forget Mrs. Claus. Right. Right. So yeah, so that's my side gig when I'm not uh, doing woodworking stuff.
0: All right. So there you are. If you're in the Florida area and you see Santa, ask him if he does woodworking too. So (laughs) Randy, I appreciate you coming and appearing on the show. Oh, it's been a lot
1: of fun. Thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah.
0: I think that wraps it up for another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. Uh, as always, you can watch the podcast on our YouTube channel. You can also check out our show notes page that we have on our website, woodsmith.com podcasts. You'll find the Shop Notes podcast at all the local podcasteries that are out there. Uh, so feel free to subscribe, and we love it when you give us good reviews because that helps the podcast get out to more woodworkers feel free to share it as well if you have any questions comments or smart remarks you can send those in either in the comments section on our youtube channel or email us woodsmith at woodsmith.com just a reminder that today's episode was brought to you by shaper tools they're the makers of the shaper origin it's that handheld cnc that allows you to bring digital precision to your woodworking you can do everything from joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. Right now, they're offering a special risk-free option where you can try it in your shop for 30 days. You just check out shapertools.com to find out the details. Otherwise, we'll see you next week on the Shop Notes podcast. Bye, everybody.